Welcome to Copyright Clearance in this podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, November 9th, 2018, and Publishers Weekly senior writer Andrew Albanese is with me in the magazine's offices in Lower Manhattan. Good to see you, Andrew. Hey there, Chris, and welcome to New York. It is definitely good to be here, Andrew. I'm here for a book industry study group event on blockchain and publishing, and there'll be coverage on that by your colleague Calvin Reed in an upcoming Publishers Weekly. I look forward to reading it because he can make some sense of it when it was tough for me to do that. And of course, uh, you and the PW crew have just put to bed Monday's issue, which includes the annual salary survey, one of the most interesting snapshots we get every year of the state of the publishing business. So tell us about that. Yeah, and, and these people actually get paid in real currency and not cryptocurrencies. I'd say that there's a consistent theme or two that emerges from our annual salary survey. And the most consistent theme is that change is really needed in the publishing workforce and change appears to be coming, though uh, this year's results show that change is coming very, very slowly. I'll give you the most ex- obvious example from some top line numbers in this year's survey. So the annual average salary for men in the publishing industry this year was $87,000, which is up very slightly. But the industry still shows a striking gender gap in our industry because the average annual salary for women is just $60,000. That's a $27,000 gap. Now, the good news is that that gap actually closed a bit from last year, but only by about $1,000. So that's way too slow. And the bad news is that women still account for 80% of the publishing workforce. And it's amazing to me that you could be 80% of an industry's workforce and still see that high of a gender gap. Well, in Indeed, and it is a striking imbalance. Uh, are there parts of the publishing industry you see making more progress than others? Yeah, in fact, you know, women did close the pay gap in the management ranks, for example, which is the most lucrative job area in the publishing industry, and they closed that by about $3,000. Again, still a drop in the bucket. But the survey also indicates that women have made real progress in management, so there's a little more good news there. According to the survey, 59% of management jobs are now held by women in the industry, and that's up from 49% in the previous year. Uh, or excuse me, in 2016, I believe. But in editorial, where women have tended to fare the best in the publishing industry, at least on the salary scale, men out-earned women 77000 to 55000 another striking imbalance. And the fact is, overall, the industry, which has never been a lucrative business, if I'm being honest here, is still not showing employees the money. The average pay raise in this year's survey was 2.7%. Uh, that's the same percentage increase in 2016, and just about the same in years before that. Also in 2016, like in 2016, I should say, 18% of employees reported that they didn't get a raise. So not exactly a fast-growing, uh, lucrative industry for, for employees. Yeah, people aren't rushing into it like they're rushing into jobs in Silicon Valley. But what else does the survey say? I know PW has been asking about diversity in the publishing ranks, for example. Is there any improvement in that area? Well, here's the thing. No matter what part of publishing's workforce is being discussed, change comes slowly, like like I said before, and that's certainly true on the diversity front. Uh, Despite years of discussion about the need to bring more people of color into publishing, uh, the new edition of the survey shows that 86% of publisher staffs in 2017 are white, and that's virtually the same as 2016, and just slightly less than years before that. You know, there was one encouraging sign, I think, in the survey this year uh, regarding diversification efforts on a percentage basis. Non-white employees with less than three years of experience accounted for 19% of all non-white employees, while white employees with that same amount of experience made up only 9% of the white workforce. And that's an indication, perhaps, that publishing is starting to attract uh, young people of color. So there's something there. 
But this is the most telling thing on the diversification question for me. 53% of non-white employees thought strides have been made in diversifying the publishing ranks. And in terms of improving the diversity of titles, 78% of all respondents said improvement has been made. And that's a large factor, I think, because one of the obvious reasons for a lack of diversity in the book business historically has been a lack of diversity on our bookshelves. You know, it's a subject you'll recall that Chimamanda Adichie spoke about in her opening speech at this year's Frankfurt Book Fair. It's a time for new voices, she said. And if you take a look through PW's best books, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, you'll see the amazing range of diverse voices that now represent the very best of what we have in the book business. When CCC's Friday podcast returns, Andrew Albanese unmasks the mystery buyer for America's last standing bookstore chain. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor of Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwinsider or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes. It's Friday, November 9th, 2018. I'm Chris Keneally for Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book. We are catching up on the week's news in book publishing with Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly and recording in the magazine's offices on 23rd Street. And in our last Friday edition of Beyond the Book, Andrew, we devoted the entire show to the lawsuit now underway between Barnes & Noble and their recently fired CEO, Demos Barneros. This week, we have an important update. We now know who was the mystery buyer for Barnes & Noble, and it is British firm W.H. Smith. So, surprised? Yeah. As a matter of fact, very surprised, I have to say. And I just wonder how many more surprises we're going to have in this case before it's all said and done. But, you know, no, for one, as I said back in August, I had no doubt that we would eventually learn the identity of the mystery retailer uh, that was said to be in the final stages of buying Barnes & Noble. And, of course, as you note, this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that it was British retailer W.H. Smith, which... You know, I suppose it makes sense because we know W.H. Smith was looking to expand in the U.S. Uh, they have a presence in airports and they'd had a presence in airports. But, you know, I really am surprised, not just because it's an example of a smaller fish eating a bigger fish. You know, Barnes & Noble has double the sales of Smith, about $3.7 billion, I think, to Smith's $1.8 billion in revenue. But, you know, it just seems... To me, that it would be almost easier for Smith if they really wanted to come into the U.S. market to just do it. They have a brand of their own. They wouldn't have to take over all these stores and leases, for example. They, they could even bring back the Borders name and maybe have a fresh start. At least they'd have some some good publicity there, perhaps, that Borders coming back. Even give that a fresh go. And, of course... There's this little outfit in the U.S. that's expanding into physical retail. They're called Amazon. So I don't know. I'm a little surprised that Smith would think that this is you know, a good time for them to jump in over here. But I am surprised that they were in the game here. And it just makes me wonder all that much more. What actually put them off the sale this past June? What was the final straw that finally made them think it wasn't a good idea? Well, it's a good question, and we don't have the answer yet, but we do have Barnes & Noble's answer, of course, and, and they say in their response to Demos Barneros' lawsuit that it was, in fact, the former CEO himself who sabotaged the sale. Earlier this week, you were headed to court for a related hearing. Anything come of that? 
nothing new. In fact, I trudged down to court, me and a few other reporters, and we were sitting there late in the day, 430 on election day. And lo and behold, the hearing had been adjourned. Uh, it wasn't updated for us on the docket. I think we were quite annoyed, <laughs> but it's now set for next week. So next week, next Friday, we could very well have some more news on this. All right. Well, certainly Barnes & Noble would rather we all be in a bookstore than in a courthouse. And on the bookselling front, we're getting third quarter results from some of the major publishers. And they seem to bode well for something, as I say, that Barnes & Noble certainly could use a strong finish to this year. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you can read about the, the results that are coming in on the Publishers Weekly website, but generally they're looking really strong and not just for the reasons you might think. And I'm speaking, of course, of Trump related books. Uh, in fact, a couple of themes worth noting uh, in the third quarter here is that publishers say their profits and their sales are being driven by backlist books and digital audio. Uh, the Hachette Book Group, for example, and deliver it, I'll quote here, these are their words, we don't hear them often, a sparkling performance in the third quarter of 2018 with sales up 5.1% based on backlist and digital audio, and also some pretty strong releases like, for example, James Patterson and Bill Clinton's The President is Missing. Although I think it's worth noting that outside the U.S., total revenue for Hachette Book Group's parent company, Lagardere, was actually down a bit. HarperCollins also reported. Now, it isn't the third quarter for HarperCollins. They operate on a different fiscal calendar. So I think it's actually the first quarter of the 2019 fiscal year for them. But they, too, reported a really uh, healthy quarter with a 42% jump in profits, thanks to, all together now, backlist sales and digital audio. In fact, Harper officials said digital audio book sales were up 55% for the quarter over the same quarter last year. Uh, and they also went on to say that digital audio is now offsetting soft ebook sales, so much so that digital sales in the quarter were up 12%, even though ebook sales were down. So we'll have much more to report as publishers report their quarterly results. Check out the PW site. But yeah, definitely some good news here to close out the week for publishers and good news looking forward, especially with the holiday season now upon us. Well, indeed, good news for publishers and good to see you, Andrew Albany, senior writer of Publishers Weekly, who joins me every Friday on Beyond the Book. Thanks for doing it this week and look forward to talking to you next week. My pleasure, as always. Up next on Beyond the Book, at the recent Rights Tech Summit, technologists and artist representatives discussed how they are leveraging the inherent transparency of blockchain to improve the system of accounting and payments. Technology is no longer the artist's foe, but a friend instead, says Danny Anders, founder and CEO of ClearTracks. The question is, why do we need a black box? And so I think if we want to expect accountability and accuracy and make sure the money is going to the right people... Uh, we need to eliminate that box and introduce a, a level of transparency so people can, can go in and, you know, check that work and make sure that they are accurate. Increasingly, I think you have a lot of independent artists, a lot of even uh, producers working out of their bedroom, creating content very quickly, uh, who don't have necessarily the support of the industry or the infrastructure uh, and, and the labels and publishers to help them with that process, how do we make sure that those guys are able to participate without having an understanding of an extremely complex system? How blockchain might open the rights management black box, next time on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. Mm-hmm.